Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery. For all your bow hunting needs, visit lancasterarchery.com. We've got the gear, we've got the knowledge, and we've got the passion. Well, here we are as we're rolling uh, into November and, and through the month. You know, it's the time of year where I always start to think. If I don't have the deer I was looking for, I don't have the deer I want at all. What am I going to do? Um, everybody who listens to the podcast knows I live in Pennsylvania, where you where you have a lot of hunting pressure, especially when gun season rolls in. And uh, I have a small parcel that I hunt here at my house. It's great for archery, really tough once the shooting starts. So I've had to come up with some uh, different tactics. But I have two big-time whitetail hunters who have joined us today that have a wealth of experience, and I'm going to introduce them now. We have... Josh Honeycutt from Kentucky. Josh, you and I met uh, several years ago on a hunt in Texas, and uh, you you just love to pursue whitetails, especially with the bow. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and uh, Tim Kent from New York. Tim also an avid whitetail hunter. Not only where you live in New York, but also you make a, an annual trip out to Illinois if you can every year for uh, some big buck action. So, uh, but you and I have known each other for a number of years. So thank you for taking time. I know it's a really busy time for you guys. Thank you both. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you know, I think it's a great way to jump in. This is you guys probably more seasons than not. With your bow hunting, you might be still looking for your deer. And, you know, it's when that rut comes in, people get so excited those first two weeks of, of November. Or there's guys who are uh, really dedicated to like the end of October and that's their favorite time to hunt. But more often than not, you might have a tag that you're still trying to fill in that uh, second half of the month or even going into December. So uh, we'll start with you, Tim. Like uh, in those years when you've been in this situation, what's your strategy as uh, the peak of the breeding season comes and it's sort of starting to wane, what do you do when you're still out there looking to fill your tags? Try not to go that long. Try to get it done in early October <laughs> if I can. That's the that's my first strategy. Um, you know, I'm not a good rut hunter, which is partially why I say that. You know, and I don't know if it's the ground that I have access to, the way that I make decisions when it comes to hunting, but my my rut hunting success is sort of hit and miss. So as a result of that, I find myself very often scrambling to get a tag filled post rut and before our rifle season opens here in New York or after our rifle season is open and then in our late muzzleloader and bow season. And um, so as a result, each year, I'm just trying to pay attention to what's going on. I personally find that the, the rut, if you will, and that level of activity sort of is inconsistent year over year. I know there are days that are threaded throughout, you know, the whole cross section of the years in record keeping that show to be the best, but you, know, you get into that kind of November 8th through November 15th timeframe, November 18th, that type of thing, it can be a little bit different. And generally for me, uh, that time of year, I'm sort of back to focusing on food. So um, early in the season through most of October, I'm focused on food. I always sort of say when I write or whatever, food is the mood then. And then when you get into the breeding time, I, my focus is less on food and, and a lot more on terrain, wind, those types of things. But then when we get back to that, that back half, I'm going to, I'm going to focus again on food because any bucks that are trying to cruise and pick up 
any last minute doughs or that type of thing, they're going to be looking on the food, but those doughs are now more comfortable being on the food source in my experience. And so as a result, they're not getting bumped off by the younger deer or pushed around and, you know, all that activity happening on the food source. So I'm back to food and I'll usually see deer of all sorts of sexes and age structure and everything else focusing on food. So I try and be really low pressure at that time of year and really strategic about what I'm doing. Sometimes I'll even sit back, pull back into a stand that's a little further away and see what's going on and then go back mm-hmm. into a spot the next day or later that day or whatever, in order to take advantage of something that might be a little bit more consistent. But from a, from a, you know, large scale perspective, that's generally my, my strategy that time of year. And it'll hold true even as we transition into gun season um, anymore. I do gun hunt. I used to be a purist and bow, bow hunt through all that. But yeah, again, my mornings are focused on the timber and afternoons are focused on food. Yeah. Now, Josh, you actually, in where you live in Kentucky, your gun season probably starts around the same time, I'm guessing mid-November. Um, but what kind of tactics do you like to take, say you find yourself in that second half of the month if you're still out bow hunting? Yeah. You know, um, it depends on the state that I'm located in. Um, I, I'm a gun hunter too. I don't just bow hunt. Usually I hunt with what's in season. Um, you know, our Kentucky is strictly speaking for Kentucky. Uh, you know, generally it's that gun season runs from around usually it's the full, the, the Saturday and Sunday that's closest to the 10th. I think this year our gun season comes in the 11th and it runs through the 20th. Um, so sometimes I'm still gun hunting at that point, but if it's after gun season and it's back to bow season, um, my tactics are obviously different. So if I'm in the back half of, of, of November and it's still gun season, I'm doing one thing, but if I'm, if I'm bow hunting, I'm doing something else. And usually if, if it's to that point in bow season, um, most of the ruts over with, um, I, I did shoot my Kentucky buck last year with a rifle on November 22nd. So you can still see, and he was actually bedded down with an estrus doe whenever I did. So you can see some rutting activity, you know, even into late November, what I really like about that time of year, if you look at the record books, some of the really, really, really big deer, the top end, you know, the biggest of the big bucks are actually killed that last seven to 10 days in November. Uh, a lot of those deer don't fall that first three weeks. So um, if you are bow hunting at that time, during that time frame, it's really, you know, food is good, as Tim said, um, depending on where you're at, though. So if you're somewhere where, you know, maybe in the southern half of the United States, maybe you're in parts of where I, like where I'm at, where you might see some rutting activity late November, you can still hunt some of those rut stands that you've been, you know, bow hunting for three or four weeks or, or you know, spots, you know, general locations that are good rut stands and still see some success. That said, a lot of these big mature bucks, even though they're still cruising, they've saved a little gas in the tank for that last week of November um, to catch that last estrus doe or two. They're not stupid. And, and so sometimes where you might catch, you know, your typical two and a half, three and a half, maybe a four and a half year old deer a long way away from bedding cover and maybe a pinch point or in a saddle or some type of funnel. I tend to not see whether it be in person or on trail cameras that type of movement from your uber mature deer that are five and a half, six and a half plus, uh, even a lot of the four and a half year old deer at that point. So at that last seven week, seven days, 10 days in November, if I'm bow hunting, I tend to push back closer to buck bedding um, for those morning hunts, get in super early, two or three hours before daylight, set up 
on, on the downwind sides because most of the time when those big deer circle back into their bedding areas, they're doing so from downwind. And so you got to get down uh, downwind of that. And so um, that, that's what I like for morning hunts because um, a lot of the times you get that late in November and those big mature bucks aren't going to find estrus does as easily unless you have a really unbalanced buck to doe ratio. Um, and so if they don't find a buck, an estrus doe, receptive doe at night, more than likely they're going to get back to their own bedroom. And that's going to be wherever they felt the safest on the property. So uh, if you think that there's a pretty low odds of, of, of there being an estrus doe in the area, then I would probably focus morning hunts on those downwind sides of buck bedding, not necessarily doe bedding, but buck bedding, um, and catch them as they circle back in. Um, you can still hunt those downwind sides of doe bedding areas too for morning hunts as those bucks might be still checking those areas. Um Generally, if I do that though, it's going to be a it's going to be a doe bedding area that's that's the closest to where that buck likes to bed, especially if it's in the same patch of cover, same patch of timber. Maybe you've got a hundred yards or 150 yards of separation between where that buck likes to bed and maybe the nearest doe group, uh, doe family group. Um, one of those two places are probably where I'm going to focus on of a morning, of an afternoon. Food sources are still good. Bucks are trying to recoup some of that weight loss. Uh, they can lose up to 30% during the rut. And so uh, it, food's still good. If you if it's an it's unpressured or a low pressure situation, I'll back all the way back out to maybe the, the food source edge, you know, the, the edge that's closest to that bedding cover. Uh, but oftentimes if I'm bow hunting again, I like to stay in cover. And so I'll find a staging area that's located along that bed to feed line of movement, but I'm going to be closer to the bedroom than I am the, uh, uh, you know, the, the dinner table. But wow, that, that just is so much to unpack there. And the first thing that jumped around you, when you want to move closer to those buck bedding areas, I'm assuming oh, it's a combination. I, I, lost of... no, I, I can still hear you. So, uh, can you hear us? Tim, you can still hear me. Yeah. Oh, All yeah, right. I got Josh. You. Sorry. You I back. I must've froze up or something. My apologies. No, no, no worries at all. There's a couple of things that really jumped out. And the one was you talked about your approach in those uh, known buck bedding areas and got me to thinking, like, I'm assuming that's you sort of know that due to your trail cam and on the ground scouting over the years or, or over time. And so that's one part of it. But the other thing is you, you have to have a really careful approach, I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, it's you got the wind. You don't have any leaves on the tree anymore most places at that time of the year. So talk a little bit about how uh, important that approach is. So not to blow that deer out of there at that time of the year. Yeah. Buck bedding, doe bedding, we throw these terms around, but you know, it, a lot of times bucks and does will bed in the same area, same general areas, except those bucks are taking the best locations within those areas. And so like I hunt hill country. And so usually the bucks are bedded at the highest elevation the does are usually bedded at lower elevations. You know, if you're hunting flat ground, the bucks are usually toward the interior and the does are usually toward the exterior uh, fringes. Um, you know, so so buck bedding and doe bedding, you know, it really, uh, it, you have to figure that out over time, um, you know, through hunting, through trail camera efforts, uh, determining where these deer like to bed. Because there's usually, say you got a 100 or 200 acre property, there's usually going to be one, two, maybe three spots, but usually one or two spots that the most mature bucks on the property take over as far as their the bedding is concerned. And that's going to be the best, most uh, strategic location for them from a safety standpoint. And so, yeah, it's not all properties are conducive or, or, or permit 
um, or have the right access or even the property layout to be able to get close to a bedding area. You might not be able to get within 500 yards of a bedding area, yep. depending on, you know, if it's, if it's got a terrible property layout or terrible access. Um, but it's so, so all these, it, that's one of the things is say deer hunting is so situational. The things that I mentioned, uh, a few seconds ago, a few minutes ago might work on one property and it might not work at all on another. And because so, so pro, uh, hunting tactics are situational for the time of year, for the prop, for, even for the property that you're hunting. Um, you know, for example, you know, you might have really good access. You know, we talk about hunting all day, doing all day sits during the rut. You know, that's a, that's a great tactic, but you might have the world's worst access. You may, maybe you only have like 20 yards of road frontage on the Southwest side and you don't have, you know, the right access to get in there anywhere on that property to hunt of a morning. Maybe you got to go through the food to get to the, get to get to anywhere where you can hunt. Obviously that's not going to work for morning hunt. So you might not be able to hunt mornings at all during the rut if you don't have the right access, you know, whereas, you know, it sets up perfectly to access for an afternoon hunt. So these things that I've, that I've mentioned might work for some people, but they might not work for others. And as you mentioned, you know, having the right, you know, having right amount of cover, uh, you know, so maybe, maybe the, the edge of your timber, that's why I love if you're, if you can manage your own property, uh, planning the exterior, uh, portions of your timber with evergreens really shields your approach, you know, when you're trying to maneuver into position. And so, um, uh, screening cover is really important around bedding areas for multiple reasons. And so if you don't have that, it makes things a lot more difficult, but, um, yeah, you got to pay attention to, to the amount of cover that you have as far as your approach goes, um, the direction that you can access from, uh, the, the, the orientation of bedding area compared to food, compared to your access direction, all these things matter for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, Tim, you, you were talking about, you know, where your, your gun season comes in and, um, used to almost exclusively bow hunt, but, uh, um, have you been able to use gun pressure at all to your advantage ever in the years when you've been bow hunting? I mean, talk a little bit about that. And cause that's actually a pretty common thing here in Pennsylvania, if you're a diehard bow hunter and I'll share a scenario after that, but I'd love to hear from you because, you go right into your gun season. It's still the the tail end of the rut there, but uh, you have a I think a two or three week gun season depending on the year up there in New York. Yep, and I and I do gun I do gun hunt. I I used to bow, bow hunt all the way through, but anymore like Josh, I whatever's in season is what I'm using primarily. Um, you know, if, if you can't beat them, join them. So yep, uh, yeah. But for Josh made a, a couple of really good points that I just wrote down here. One of the things that I really try to avoid at all costs is walking through my food in or out to my stand. Uh, you know, if I can circumvent that walk around it, whether it's a, a little food plot, an acorn flat, I don't want to walk through that at all because if the deer are out feeding in there, I'm just going to put more pressure on them. To your point, there's a lot of people out there doing that during gun season, you know, as they're walking through a block of timber or they're, you know, doing a push through a goldenrod field or whatever else, they're creating enough pressure. So you have to be reactionary to that, which kind of helps me transition to the next point that I wanted to make is Josh was talking about buck bedding. And what I've come to find over the years, he touched on a, of a whole bunch of really yeah. key points about buck bedding areas. Um, I, I will find that, that does will give, they'll give up their visibility on what they're trying to watch in, in an effort to have security. I don't see that same behavior out of bucks. Often they want to be able to maintain visibility on where they might see danger approaching from. 
and you know i'll i'll see them sort of betting with the wind to their wind to their back and then they can see in front of them mule deer will do the same thing so that way they they can see danger approaching or smell it approaching from an opposite direction or you know quartering into that and a lot of times i think especially as outdoor writers you know we'll we we write in absolutes but you know again to josh's point each deer and each property has its own personality, right? Each deer has their own personality and their own things that make them feel comfortable. It's just like us, you know, I might be into bungee jumping and skydiving and, and Josh might not want to take a step down his front steps. That's two steps at all. You know what I mean? And, and so the same thing for you. And so, you know, each situation and each circumstance is different. And for me, it's like paying attention to the details and paying attention to those individual animals. Some bucks are fighters, some does are fighters. And as a result, they behave completely differently than, than others within that herd. And if you're trying to kind of narrow down onto these specific deer, you, you kind of have to figure out what makes them tick. And back to your point, how do they react to that pressure? That's very difficult to do. But nowadays, with having so many tools, you know, whether it's really high quality optics, you know, I, I see more and more people upgrading their optics to a better and better thing. When I first started hunting, I had a pair of eight by 24 Tascos, you know, and it was like looking looking through two pen tubes. That was it. it that was my binoculars. They were terrible. And, you know, anymore, I have the most expensive glass that I could afford. And I see more and more people putting emphasis on that as part of their toolbox. In addition to that, we have the eyes and ears in the timber all the time with scouting cameras and yeah. the amount of data and the amount of uh, behavioral information that we can get from that when we're not able to be in the woods helps us make decisions. There's almost days where I feel like, especially cell cameras, like yep. I'm like, man, does, is this even fair? <laughs> you know, does this, does this well, fall outside of the parameters of fair chase? I use them. You know what I mean? Like I still, I still see them as a fantastic tool, but it's just, it's augmented what we're doing. And it's, it's changed how we hunt so much that, you know, it's created, I don't necessarily want to say advantages because you still have to make good decisions in the process, but it's just given us such a greater data set to, to help us interact, react, and be proactive and reactive to the different forces that are applying to our hunting properties and individual deer. Do you move your cameras as the season goes on or do you have enough out there? Like, do you have to focus in on certain areas as the season goes on or do you have yourself so well covered that certain cameras only pick up deer at certain times of the year? A little bit of both. It depends upon the year. It depends upon what I'm trying to do. Um, I have found on the properties that I hunt that at home here, um, generally different back to different personalities of different deer, they kind of will start to occupy you know, some, some of them might be moving bigger, greater distances. Some of them may, you know, I, you know, really isolate themselves down to very small areas in, in some instances, less than a hundred acres is where they're spending the majority of their time. And so, um, it all depends upon the circumstance, but I am generally using a scouting camera more for biological data than I am to go and target a specific animal. Uh -huh. I'll do it. I'll do it on occasion, but I want to know, are they using this specific terrain feature or are they using this specific scrape line or, or this specific hedgerow or fence row at certain years 
on certain conditions and then trying to figure out why that's happening. You know, I want to have everything wired up as, as much as I can. So that way the next year or two years down the road or whatever, when there's a similar set of circumstances, I can understand that the odds are high that other deer may utilize that terrain feature or that scrape line or that food source in a similar pattern under similar conditions at a similar time. So uh, there's a guy locally here that talks about but, uh, hunting a spot if you have the same conditions the same day every year. So if you if you saw a buck in a general vicinity on November 7th, let's say, uh-huh. you know, there was a southwest wind. Going back the next year, if there's a southwest wind on that same day and seeing if you can kill that same deer. And he's got a few data points of deer that he's killed on, on a same day scenario. And I, I've this is sort of new to me. I find that kind of fascinating overall. That's the one thing I I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I've been doing this for way too long. Uh, you know, I've been hunting for 35 years and Mm -hmm. I still don't know anything. That's the one thing I discover, you know, it's like, Oh, well, you're a whitetail expert. I'm not a whitetail expert. I'm a whitetail idiot. These things school me every single day. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just always, always learning, always being humbled and very frequently being humiliated. That's so well stated. I mean, but that's, (laughs) that is the fun in the sport. There is that element that no matter how much technology we get, you don't want that ever taken away from you. And Josh, I'm sure you feel the same way, right? We can have the greatest scouting cameras and all this data, you know, people follow the moon phases and the, uh, the moon positioning and stuff, but really comes down to the experience you want to create yourself, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I use cell cameras and they, these deer still whip my butt. Um, you know, I, and they do, they do humble you for sure. Because I mean, I, I was fortunate. I was blessed to shoot my biggest deer ever here, uh, in Kentucky during the early season this year. And, uh, and then I went to Ohio where I also have a tag and I expected my deer, the deer that I was targeting to be probably, I don't know, about 250, 300 yards deep into the timber as mm-hmm. far as his bedding location. And I took about 30 steps into the woods and blew him out of his summer bed. And that was not too long ago. So uh, expecting that deer to, to, to be pushing back into fall bedding, fall-based bedding, uh, he was still bedded right on the field edge, you know, and using his, his summer bed that he'd been using for the past however many months. So, um, you know, just when you think you got them figured out, they go and show you that you don't have anything figured out. As as Tim mentioned, you know, these deer have a way of humbling you quickly and often, and they certainly do that for me. Yeah, and it, it, it's an amazing animal. And, you know, I have to go back to something you said earlier, and that's the situational experience and, you know, individual deer and how they react. And, I like to share, like where I live here in Pennsylvania, uh, we talked about my property, but over the years, I lost a lot of the farms and stuff. I had. It was just development where I live in southeastern Pennsylvania. And I got to the point where if I didn't get a deer on the first day of gun season, I wasn't getting a deer at all. So I got to thinking, what if you go to your archery only spots? Now, these are parcels where for me, they're literally three to five acres. You're surrounded by homes. And the weirdest thing is in Pennsylvania, we have a, a 50 yard um, safety zone for archery not for firearms, that's 150. I could hunt, be 50 yards from a home. I had to wear a fluorescent orange jacket because that's the that's the, the the law here in Pennsylvania, hat and a coat. But the success I had hunting into December and January, doing that was incredible. And that was basically because those deer weren't as pressured. 
Uh, in fact, I killed my biggest buck in Pennsylvania ever. I'll never forget. It was, I think it was the, the first Saturday of our gun season, which would have been the December 6th, 7th, or 8th. Uh, it was it was snowing. I came in off a road. I went literally 60 yards to my stand, got up, and that deer came out a half hour later. But but my point is, don't be afraid to to try unorthodox tactics. And if you happen to have a spot where, where you don't get a lot of gun pressure or the landowner simply won't let you hunt with a firearm, check those out. And it could be the weirdest situation. It could be one spot I hunted was on the edge of a dump right off a road. It, the deer will go where they yeah. feel safe. So it's, it's well, there's so many things you could do. Yeah, there, there's one hunt. It wasn't a red hunt, but it was a it was a early season kind of pre-rut deal. Back in 2018, I was hunting with my uncle and actually uh, filmed that hunt. Um, and it, I think it, it ended up being um, uh, on an OSG website, but uh, you can look it up: how to kill a buck on 10 acres. But it was actually a 10 a, a 10 acre property. And this deer was living in there, you know, right next to a house. So my uh, there was a house here and then the 10 acres was right next to it. Uh, Our stand location was probably 30 yards from a driveway, 40 yards from Uh a driveway. And this deer was bedding his primary bed after, you know, because I went in and found it after the fact was maybe 80 yards, 90 yards from that house. And, you know, that that 10 acres bordered 150 that I'd hunted my whole life and we'd never had the type of success that we had in that 10 acre spot. And the reason being was it didn't receive hunting pressure. It was a little sanctuary. And then when we gained permission to hunt it, that deer had no expectations of being hunted because he'd never been hunted there. And so like that, that's just, again, it's not a rut hunt. It's, it's an early season deal, but it just goes to show, you know, to your point though, as far as weird spots during the rut, you know, pressure pushes these deer, into these tight pockets, especially once you get into that late November time frame that we're kind of focusing on here, these deer will go where they don't get pressured. And so if you've got maybe maybe you've got like a a 200 acre property and you've been hunting, you know, the best looking cover and the best looking bedding and the places that you got that deer on camera in September, October, November, early November. Well, now they've vanished. Doesn't mean they're dead. They might just be using that little five or 10 acre patch of cover that's you know, on the overlooked part of the farm that you haven't, you know, been to in three or four years. So, uh, you know, definitely focus on those overlooked places for that reason, for the pressure aspect, but also these deer, as the rut progresses, they get more intelligent too, as far as figuring out how to avoid the rest of the herd whenever they find an estrus doe. And so while your year and a half and two and a half year old bucks, maybe even some of your three and a half year old bucks don't do this, I've noticed that a lot of these four and a half plus year old bucks, especially, will push those estrus does to places where they don't encounter other bucks. And these deer know where those locations are. And so if sometimes if if say they do have an estrus doe with them, they might be in one of these oddball locations like a sinkhole or a little quarter acre, you know, woodlot or whatever it might be, you know, a fence row even, you know, something that gets them away from the rest of the deer herd. And so these little oddball places from pressure standpoint and a doe and ester standpoint can be really good in late November. Prime example, uh, I think it was 2007 here in Kentucky. I ended up shooting a buck uh, that was basically running circles around a sinkhole. And I thought the deer was just crazy, but I ended up <laughs> shooting the deer. It, it, it was, it was with a gun because it was gun season, but um I mean, I shot the deer and then whenever I walked up to retrieve the deer and recover it, 
uh, and the deer I shot was probably like 125 inch deer. So an estrus doe and about 160 to 170 inch buck come busting up out of that sinkhole. And it was just a prime example that these really mature deer will push these does into oddball spots where they don't have as much competition. And that was late November. I don't have anything else to say because Josh just took everything that I had written down. Yeah. And I'm it, so it's sorry. funny because the three of us were talking about one of the topics, it could be its whole podcast episode is my property's crap. What do you do when your deer disappear? Because, you know, uh, when they, when those does get pushed so much, they'll go into the thickest cover or they'll, they'll change their, their patterns and their tactics because they're just getting harassed so much. But there's a whole bunch of other factors. Like we talked about the gun season that can make it hard. We will have to come back and address that at some point. But, but Tim, I have to ask you, uh, you know, what do you feel like the biggest challenges are when you're trying to bow hunt late in the year? We should probably touch on that because it is a whole different ball game. There's not as much natural movement, at least on a wider scale. The deer have been pressured a bit, probably if you've come through a gun season. What are the big things you have to pay attention to, say, if you're heading out in your place in December? Um, I, I, yeah, I'm going to go back to the to, to some other stuff and then kind of use that to, to answer this question. I mean, Josh, sure. I mean, really nailed it when he was talking about that rut pressure and yep. those big bucks trying to get those does into a place where they don't have to compete with other bucks. And again, back to my my lament earlier about about hunting the rut. Um, I feel like my, my one of my mentors and friends, Craig Doherty, used to say, you know, the rut can make you a hero or a zero, right? I mean, how many times have I gone out during the rut and I sit there and I see nothing one day. And then the yep. next day I see 10 bucks glommed up on a doe having a breeding yep. party and it's November 4th or whatever on those days that are supposed to be prime. And it's just a challenge or I'll sit all day in a block of timber in a place where I, I mean, I'm near a known bedding area. And the only thing I see all day long is the same button buck coming back around again and again and again, because he is confused to no end because he doesn't know where his mom went. She abandoned him and, and whatever's going on. And, and to Josh's point, I mean, he, he nailed it. Like one of the things I had written down is like these little fence lines, brushy fence lines, especially if yeah. there's a little dip or something like that. Um, just 20 to 40 yard wide hedgerows. I mean, I see a lot of bucks push does into those hedgerows, small islands of timber. Uh, we got a, we got a pond on our farm and around that pond, it's real brushy and thick on the backside and they can bed right on that. And there's just a little bit of elevation. So they have the opportunity to see, yep. they have cover, they have everything they need. And I, I will consistently see, you know, bucks push does into that and then after the breeding season is over they will continue to adopt that pond area because it's a place that they can they can you know see what's going on around them so oftentimes especially once we get snow on the ground i'll glass up that pond dike as close as i can get to it to see if there's any bucks and now i have a i have a tree stand hung there because it also is about 40 50 yards from a hedgerow that comes down that once the pressure gets on, on surrounding properties, they start yeah. bedding on that hedgerow because they can see and smell everything that's going on bucks and does. And to Josh's earlier point, they'll bed in separate areas close to one another, but not commingle gen generally speaking. And so, you know, kind of answering your question, I, I, I tend to just try and leverage all of that and, and maximize it and use it to my advantage um because it it's can back to my thing about you know biological information like it's consistent i mean i've seen it year over year and maybe it doesn't happen every year back to back yep. 
but it's one of those data points that I can look at and go, you know, three years ago they were doing this and then I'll sit back and I'll watch them and glass them or whatever, get up on an adjacent hit side or even sit on the ground, not even wherever, and then try and figure out what they're doing and take advantage of that. And, uh, but all of that coming to the real answer, I think one of the biggest challenges we have is maintaining the discipline of not marching into a spot Mm -hmm. and just like, you know, making a mess or getting really hung up on thinking that something might make sense when it, when it really doesn't. I mean, I, I, I see a lot of guys try and cheat the wind just, just even a little bit, or, you know, use an ozone generator and they think that that's going to be a cure all and whatever yeah. else. And it's, it's just a component to the system. It's a great component, but it's not going to be a cure all. And you have to have that discipline. And as you get later into the season, especially if you're bow hunting, especially if there's been gun pressure, especially if you don't have a weather pattern that's working in your favor, you know, you got to do that. Um, again, weather patterns touching on that. That is one thing I will have the discipline to not go into the woods and just wait and wait and wait for a weather change. I mean, Josh is wearing his hunt stand hat. I'll look at hunt stand every day, multiple times a day to see what's going on in the hourly forecast. Has the weather pattern changed for three days from now? You know, when do these things rising moon, setting sun, setting sun, rising moon, you know, finding those perfect opportunities and then trying to capitalize that and using that discipline and only kind of striking when the iron's hot. If I, if I have that opportunity and at the same time, that allows me to bone up on my work and make it. So if I do have a day that's key or two days that are key, I've got my plate cleared. I've spent time with my family. I have, you know, cleared most of my plate for my work stuff and I can go and invest that time and get in a few hours earlier and just chill out and and maximize it. And that's really been a a pretty key component to my success as I've aged. The busier I've gotten with work, (laughs) the the actually the better a hunter I've become because I'm not just isolated to weekends and that type of thing. And I have to pick and choose my days more strategically. And it's allowed me to capitalize on things quite a bit more over time. And, and as a result, you know, the, the, the deer I'm killing are bigger now too, with, with more consistency. Um, you know, I'm not putting a booner on my wall every year, but I I'm certainly killing them with more consistency and, you know, having bigger antlers to, to go along with it and that type of thing. So. Yeah. And the other thing you brought up, we're, we're talking about hunting and trying to really maximize your opportunities. It's not how much you get out uh but making it the right opportunity i was wondering if either of you have been a convert or switched to hunting out of ground blinds at all especially later in the season you know it can be pretty hard to hunt out of a tree stand in in december absolutely in january i used to do it you have to remain almost motionless or your or your busted we, we both know that but have either of you started to hunt out of a ground blind when you get later in the year bye josh uh you know i have some you know it in my well speaking to usually not in kentucky i, I mean i've I'm, I'm pretty much a tree stand only guy here in kentucky but i have done uh-huh. a good bit of of blind sitting in ohio because i hunt ohio every year um and i think three of the last four years i've shot a late season ohio buck in january uh pretty sure all three of those have been in january three out of the last four years 
uh, mm-hmm. or three in the last four years. And so um, I've, in those times, all of those have actually been either um, have all been. Well, one was was arrowed in January with a bow from a tree stand. One was, and then two were with a muzzle loader sitting on the ground, uh, not in a hub style blind, but in a brush blind, self-made brush blind. Um, and, but, but outside of those three hunts during those seasons, I have done quite a bit of sitting in a ground blind, especially on late season, rainy and late season, snowy days. Um, the day before I shot my, uh, I think it would have been during the 2022 season. So that would have put it maybe the 2021 season. I can't remember. Anyway, a couple of years ago, I shot a uh, a nice 10 pointer from the tree stand in Ohio late season, and it was with snow on the ground. But the previous day, I had hunted as well, and that's when the snow came. And it was that real sticky, wet snow that was just nasty. And it was, you know, it was a snowstorm. It was about half blizzard. And that can be almost miserable to sit in a tree stand through, especially when it's super cold and you got that sticky, wet snow that's coming down hard and fast. And it's all you can't hardly see. That's those days. And then late season rainy days are when I really prefer those hub style blinds, because if you've got them in existing locations that that, that where they've been there for several days or several weeks or several months, uh, they can be especially good if you've got them on a food source. Um, And then obviously, you know, if you just pop them up, you know, out of nowhere, sometimes it takes a few days for deer to get used to it. I'm not a big fan of that, but yes, in those inclement weather conditions um, where that really spurred deer to move, I actually saw a seven and a half year old buck at 20 yards and couldn't shoot him because he never did give me an opportunity uh, whenever I was sitting in that ground blind. So ground blinds can work. Uh, of course, like I said, the next day I ended up shooting a, a four and a half year old deer from the stand uh-huh. in, a, in the same general area. But yeah, ground blinds are really good. Um, I, I also like hunting from the ground without one. I've not, you know, I mean, whether I'm hunting with a crossbow, a compound, or it's a, uh-huh. you know, a firearm. I, I've, I've had a lot of success just, just hunting from the ground without, without a blind at all wow and obviously the wind being super key and obviously keeping your your movement to a minimum there that's going to be pretty challenging yeah and i do use a lot of natural cover uh, but the reason i like it is because it allows me and i love hub style blinds don't get me wrong i've done a lot of deer hunting from those and shot deer from those but I, I usually like to keep those in permanent locations for the season i don't like to move them around a lot and you know as we know deer are on 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 different lengths of patterns so you've got short-term patterns mid-term patterns long-term patterns you know a long-term pattern might be a deer eating on a green soybean field for three months it might you know mid mid mid-term pattern might be a whitetail keying on um you know uh some white oaks or some red oaks that last you know two or three weeks uh and a short-term pattern might be where you have the absolute right conditions to, to do a late season hunt so maybe Maybe you've got some really dense conifers on a south-facing slope, and a big snowstorm comes out of nowhere, and so you got the thermal cover, and you got the the uh, 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 solar cover, and, and I know we're talking late season here a minute ago, but even even in late November, so let's say a big snowstorm comes out of nowhere in late November, and the deer haven't really been focusing on solar or thermal cover like they will late in the season. But you have this big late November snowstorm that comes out of nowhere and the temperatures, you know, the, the bottom falls out of the bucket, bottom of the bucket, and it just just drops. And so you have suddenly have this influx of deer that are that are living on that south facing slope and that cedar thicket or spruce or pine or whatever it is. 
and you have like a two day pattern there where the deer are just in there like crazy. And so like paying attention to these short, mid and long-term patterns. And the reason I do like to hunt from the ground is because it lets you take advantage of those short-term patterns that you might not be able to take advantage of with some of your fixed position, permanent stand and blind locations. Yeah. And, and thank you for that. And you talked about like really paying attention to conditions and I have to share something we touched on earlier on good to, Many years ago, I started to actually keep a notebook where I write down all the conditions, weather, temperatures and stuff. You were talking about the guy that really focused on uh, cer uh, certain days, specific days. Uh, I, I started to keep a, a, a log and it really helped as I was planning out, you know, and going through your season. You can look back now. Obviously, you don't hunt the same stands every year at the same time, but uh, paying attention to conditions is, is so, so huge. I know you guys are really busy, so I'm going to leave with one last question here. And I, I want both of you to answer uh, you know, we're talking about the ruts coming bond and you're, you're thinking about what you're going to do for the rest of your season. What's the number one tip you'd share with somebody if they want to up their odds for success? And again, I want to hear from both of you. So we'll stick with you, Josh, and then I want to hear from you, Tim. Yeah, even during the rut, I, I try not to get pigeonholed into cookie cutter tactics. Uh, you know, as as Tim said, we're, you know, as outdoor riders, we, we do ride in absolutes. We do tend to hit on the same things over and over and over again um, because those things are, do work and they're proven. Um, but again, deer hunting, my number one advice that I try to give to anybody who asks, and I'm not an expert, but this is just what I've learned and what others have taught me, is to make sure you pay attention to the situational tactics. It doesn't matter if it's early season, late season, or if it's late November and the, the back end of the rut. Situational tactics always matter. And, and so you're trying to pay attention to the basic needs of a deer, food, bedding, water, security during the rut. You're, you know, you're factoring in some love there. Uh, so but but you're, you're, you're thinking about all the different pieces that are on the board, so to speak, figuring out how they fit together, trying to determine exactly what that deer is doing and why he's doing it. And then analyzing the situation, um, the orientation of all the factors that surrounds that animal's life and figuring out how you can manipulate those to your advantage or at least navigate those to your advantage and that's true even during the rut even in even in early november or late november but definitely focus on those situational tactics because how you play your hand on this particular deer is probably going to be completely different on how you play your hand on a different deer even on the same property at the same time of year as Tim was saying, these deer have personalities. They have they inhabit different areas on the property in the area, and so when you're trying to figure out how to hunt this, so for prime example is like I've hunted some of the same properties for, I don't know, uh, some of these properties my entire life. But I've hunted the property that I hunt most in Kentucky right now. I've hunted for this is probably the ninth season. There's another uh -huh. property that I've hunted for probably 25 years. Another place for 20 years. And I don't think I've ever, out of, out of the deer that I've killed, and I don't have stacks of them, but I've, I've shot a few, but I don't think any particular hunt, even on some of these small properties, have ever been carbon copies or even close to carbon copies of one another. The closest, the closest that you can get to that, and this is my other tip, so I have one other, I guess one other piece of advice is you can figure out on that property where the X is, so to speak. That's a duck hunting term, but there's somewhere on that property that makes that deer that you're going after if you're going after a mature target buck more vulnerable than any other location 
And so if you can figure out how that deer uses the property, analyze the situational tactics that you need to implement, and then determine where that X is located at, then you're going to have more success. And, and, and the, the club, but again, the closest that I've ever been to replicating hunts is one particular property where I shot my deer four years in a row uh, in Kentucky and all those deer were shot. They weren't early season deer. They weren't rut deer, but they were all shot within a probably a 60, 70 yard radius of one another. But each one of those deer were in different locations. And so even though I was on the same property and had same scenario, similar scenarios, all four of those bucks were using different bedding areas. Not one of them came from the same bedding area and food sources were different. But if you can find that X, wherever that interception point is on the property to take advantage of the most movement in the area, you're going to have more success any time of year, but but even especially during late November, during the backside of the rut. Totally agree. And thank you. And Tim, your top tip for somebody that's still out there hunting in second half of November and beyond. I think it's the same tip, no matter what the time of year is, but it becomes particularly true later is you got to be where the deer want to be, not where you want to be. And I, I always use a specific example of this. I have this tree stand. It's on the end of a hedgerow. There's a little gap. And then there's a big block of timber. And for years, I watched, I watched these bucks come out underneath this one oak tree and just consistently come out right underneath that oak tree. And there's, there's no way that with the way the wind worked and everything else, I could hang a stand right there. And and not create vulnerability for me. So I always felt like I was playing it safe and using that tree and, you know, they were going to eventually come to me. Well, in let's say 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks that I walked, watched come out underneath that tree. I shot two of them out of that tree. And so one day I was just like, this is stupid. Back to your ground blind thing. I'm like, why am I why am I trying to take full advantage of just using this tree stand? I'm putting a blind over there, right? Mm -hmm. By where they come out and then taking it. I'm only going to hunt it on these two wind directions because they're ideal and that's it. And then we started killing deer, you know, right in that spot because we needed to be where they wanted to be, not where we wanted to be or what we thought was the best situation. It sounds really simple. It sounds really dumb, but it's really the truth. And to, it's kind of to Josh's point of being on the X, you know, and it, it's just, it's one of those things where, okay, we, we found it. It's, it, and I, you know, going back to your earlier question about utilizing ground blinds, I use them more and more and more for that exact reason. Cause I can put them exactly where I want to be. I'm not trying to mess around with trees and whatever else. I have another, I just wrote about this um, the other day. I have another example of, I went in on a piece of public land that I had never actually hunted before. And I just e-scouted and uh, I had decided I needed to be in this one spot on what I thought was the downwind side of a doe bedding area to, you know, like Josh had talked about earlier. And this was during the rut. And I was like, I got to be there. And I get there and there are, there are like no good trees to do a hanging hunt in. Uh, this was kind of before saddles became a big deal. And I was running a wool, lone wolf set of sticks and things. There was one tree that was like 20 yards too far in. 
And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, I just don't, I just don't like that tree. The only other tree was a walnut tree. that was probably eight inches in diameter and, you know, 30 feet tall to the top of the crown. And uh-huh. it went up and branched out at like, at like nine or 10 feet. And I hung my stand like nine feet off the ground. And I, that afternoon, I sat all morning and into the afternoon and that afternoon at three 30 in the afternoon, I was actually on my, on my phone with my wife. Uh-huh. We had a little family situation happening at home. And I see a buck coming down the hill out of an adjacent piece of cornfield. And I go, I got to go. There's a buck coming. And I shot that buck at 16 yards. If I had been in that other stand 20 yards further up, I would have he I would have been upwind of him and he would have had my wind. And we wouldn't have had that that encounter or that story. I, I needed to be back. I was just watching a Don Higgins thing the other day. And he said, you want to select the most downwind trail right for this for, for those rut scenarios and that's exactly right like you gotta <clears throat> find that place where you know you you are where they want to be not where you want to be sometimes that's a little bit of a sacrifice in a tree or something like that I, I was smiling the whole time as you were sharing that story i've never had somebody share a story that was similar to my situation here at my house i mentioned my property's hard to hunt and um i had to adapt because the deer will come in i've seen them do this for years They'll go into my hedgerow. They'll lay down there. They'll come back out at night. Well, if I walk 20 yards in the woods, I blow the deer right off my property. Yep. So I put a ground blind up. I only hunt it on two wind directions, maybe, you know, and uh, I've had much better luck too. So it's funny because it, it, you have to do what you think is going to work best. Everybody has that classic get in a tree, hunt during the rut. It's going to be crazy action, but you might have trouble getting into your spot. It may not be where the deer are at. And, so the tips you two guys share here today are incredible. I want to thank you both so, so much and wish you good luck with the rest of your season. And for everybody who's listening here on the podcast, don't be afraid to improvise, change up your tactics, and most importantly, keep persevering as the season goes on. You never know when you get hit it right. We'll see you next time on the Bow Hunting Podcast. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.